And it is my joy to be able to, to start this study with you all as we begin this series, studying the matters of the church. You know, I can tell you that Paul and I have been working on this for a while and uh, talking about it a lot with the elders and just trying to figure out what this is going to look like. And so we've been eagerly and at times anxiously an- anticipating how this was going to work and what, what, what it was going to look like. So very grateful that we've made it to this point where we're starting this series where we get to look into this important doctrine of the church. It, it is a daunting task to, to study through the doctrine of the church. I was leading a, a Sunday school class for a little while that was talking about ecclesiology, the study of the church, and I thought we'd be able to get through it in a few months, and we're still only halfway through what I thought we would be able to, to get through. There's just so much there. We're not going, we're, we don't want to dig in to so much detail that it becomes hard to, to follow with this. We would just want to get to the core understanding of what the church is. And we're starting this week with the nature of the church. Re- really getting to that, that sort of what is the, a church? What is the church? So we're going to start that by looking at our passage in 1 Timothy 3. We're going to look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. So Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is right in the middle of Paul's letter to Timothy. And, and he gives this purpose statement right here in the middle of his letter. This is why he is writing this letter to begin with. Paul cares deeply about the church and he wants them to know who they are in Christ and how they ought to live. So that's why he's written this book to Timothy, his protege, who's leading the church in Ephesus. He wants Timothy to know what the church is, how it should operate, and how to convey that to those in his congregation so that they would understand the same thing, that they would be able to understand who they are as the church and live according to that. You know, we need that same perspective today. Not just in a general sense of we we need to understand what the Bible has to say about the church, but there's a lot of confusion over what the church is or who the church is these days. Recent events have caused some people to question whether church can take place in a multitude of different forms. Uh, Can we meet in in various different ways or is there one specific way that we ought to gather we need to know for certain the matters of the church because the church matters to christ we need to recognize particularly what the church is that's what we're focusing on today we need to see that the church is those who belong to the lord through faith in christ the church is those who, are, who have become new creatures, made spiritually alive because Christ Jesus shed His own blood for us. The church is the body of Christ. It's called to fulfill what He commands. It is a community that is focused on 
and shaped by the gospel, the message of the gospel. The church is the visible representation of Christ to the outside world. The church is even the bride of Christ who will live in His presence forever. That's just a sampling of of what the Bible has to say about who the church is, what the church does. And these aren't even the descriptions of the church that we're going to focus on today. These are just a, a, a list of things that are still also true about the, about the church. But I want you to notice one thing that was at the root of all those different descriptions, those analogies or images. The thing that kept coming up is Christ and His Gospel. You know, the church exists for Christ. It, it, is, it has its life from Christ it operates through Christ and it looks to Christ. And Paul read from Romans 11 to start this service. It says, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That all things includes the church. The church exists from Him, through Him, to Him, and for Him. God has established the church to make much of Christ in what we say and in what we do. That's what we see in in our passage today. We're going to spend a fair amount of time looking particularly at verse 15. And I want to start by looking at the beginning of verse 15 where it says, where Paul Paul is talking about he's writing so that the church would know how one ought to behave as part of the church. So he's going to give some pictures of what the church is, what it looks like, But he's giving these images with the expectation or the obligation that there is conduct for us to to perform as that representation of of Christ, as as that, that idea of the church. There are certain principles that we need to practice that are laid out in Scripture based on the pictures that Paul gives in this passage. It's almost as if God is saying in this passage, this is who you are as the church. Now go live like it. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see that the church is God's chosen people for His glory, declaring His message, and fulfilling His purpose. The church is God's chosen people for His glory, declaring His message, and fulfilling His purpose. So we see that particularly in this passage through three pictures of the church. I I already listed off a number of other pictures of the church throughout Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. But these three in 1 Timothy 3.15 give us a comprehensive understanding of what the church is and how it should operate. So we're going to look at these three pictures. The first Paul says that the church is the house of God's family. The house of God's family. So this comes from Paul's first analogy that the church is the household of God. Now that word household can refer both to the actual building that a family lives in or the family unit itself that lives, that lives together. The, the main thrust of this word here is to talk about 
the family. It's very similar to how we utilize the word church today. You know, I told my kids as I was leaving the house this morning, oh, I'm heading off to church. And that meant that I was, I was dr- going to be driving to the church building. And then, you know, we, we talk about how com- coming out of a service, like, oh, that, that church was great today. And we're talking about the, the service, what actually happened. And then we, we also have the idea of the people who come together. That, that is the core of the church, is the people who are gathering. We use that word in so many other ways, but at the core of the church is the people who gather to worship together. And that's the same thing here, that the word household is meant to convey the family that, that lives within a, a particular house. Now think about this. If you are saved by the grace of Christ, that means that you are a part of the family of God. Now I know that that's not new information for most of you, but I think we become so familiar with that phrase that that God is our Father and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ that we don't actually pay attention to the full weight of what that means. What it means that, that we are children of God, part of His family. I think about this in, in light of Galatians 4, 4 through 7, where Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And we see here that we are adopted into God's family. We see from other passages of Scripture that we were enemies of God. And because of the work of Christ that saves us, we don't, it's not just that we are now at a peaceful relationship. We're not at war with God. He has actively brought us into His family and adopted us as His sons and daughters. That's what it means to, when we say that we are the children of of God. He has brought us into this close family relationship with Him. It also makes me think of 1 John 3, the first half of verse 1 that says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. That is the reality. Do, do you understand how wonderful this is that we are the children of God adopted by Him. Each week when we gather together in this room for these services, this is basically a little family reunion where we get to gather together and recount the glories of the fact that God has adopted us into His family. We get to rejoice in the work that God has done in our lives. That's part of why we gather as the church, it's because we're a family together. 
Now remember, Paul is using each of these pictures to show how we ought to conduct ourselves as the church. So if the church is the family of God, then how do we act as the family of God? How do we act as the family of God? Well, to answer that question, I want us to consider two things that will help shape how, how we ought to act, how we ought to respond to this, to this knowledge. The two things to consider. The first is that God the Father is the head of this family. God the Father is the head of this family. You think about the ideal authority structure within a family, within a home. Typically what that looks like is the parents dictate to the children how the family ought to behave. The parents really have to take time to teach that to, to the kids so that they understand this is how we behave as this family. And because the husband or the father is, is established as the head of the household, the responsibility really falls to the father as the head to make sure that that standard is set. The, the, he, he conveys to everyone, this is how we're going to act and this is how we're going to behave as this family. Well, in that same way, God the Father, the head of our spiritual family, has given us a standard by which we ought to live and it's found in His Word. He has shown us who He is. He's given us His credentials as the authority, as our Father, shown us who He is, what He's done, and shows us how we ought to behave in response to that. And after all that He has done for us and adopting us into His family, I mean, there's no other real option for us but to lovingly and willingly obey what He has commanded of us in His Word. And we express our love for God by digging deep into the Word, devouring what is there, learning all that we can about who God is and what He's done, what He has called us to do, and letting that dictate our lives. And that is most plainly seen in the way that we interact with one another. Our love for God is most easily expressed in the way that we love one another. That's why the two great commandments, the, the summation of the law and the prophets is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that brings us to the second consideration as we think through how do we act as the family of God. So the first consideration was that God the Father is the head of the family. The secondly, we are brothers and sisters in an eternal family. We are brothers and sisters in an eternal family. So think about your own families growing up. How, show, show of hands, how many of you had siblings? Majority of people, that's, that's awesome. Now I can guarantee that all of you who raised your hands have not gotten along perfectly with your siblings 100% of the time. True or false? True. One fault. Who said false? 
it's okay to say that it's, that it's true because it's true literally for all of us. We're all human. We're all sinful and selfish. We want what we can get for ourselves. And that means that we're going to be at odds with those closest to us, mainly our siblings. And I see, I have a perfect example of that anytime my kids want to play with toys. You, you can see that in the nursery even, kids who want to play with the same toy at the same time. There's going to be conflict. You know, there, there are arguments. There, there may be even fights between siblings. But did that stop you from being siblings? No, you're still part of the same family. As much as you may have wanted to kick that, your brother or sister out of your family or tear their head off or something like that, that's not what happened. You're still part of the same family. You figured out how to resolve the situation and move on from it. Because as angry as you may have been in that moment with your sibling, you still love them. They're still part of your family. So you find ways to resolve situations so that you are, work, so that, so that you are able to live together as a family. But think about our church and the brothers and sisters that you have here in this room, the brothers and sisters that you may not get to see very often who come to first service. You know, there may still be disagreements and arguments among us because we all still wrestle with the flesh that is at work within us. We're still going to come to those disagreements, but that does not change the fact that we are all part of the family of God. And so we need to be striving for unity with one another. Not necessarily that we have to agree to every single thing the same as another person, but we can come to an understanding and work together as brothers and sisters in a church family together. So that we are, we are continuing to move forward as a church body, as a church family, in, in that goal of making much of Christ. That is the, the full goal of our ministry as a church. We operate as a family toward that end. And we need to be united in that goal. So anything that we can do to dispel any disagreements between us and come to an understanding we ought to do so that we can be united in the work that God has put before us. You know, our love for God is best expressed in our love for one another. That's why there are so many passages in Scripture and so many commands that tell us how we ought to behave between one another how we ought to interact with one another. You know, that would be a great study just to see what all the Bible has to say about how we ought to interact with one another. And we need to get used to being around one another because as I said, we are brothers and sisters in an eternal family. And I just mentioned that this is kind of like a, a mini family reunion every time that we meet together on a Sunday. These little family reunions are just a rehearsal 
for the great and glorious family reunion that will come in the, in the, the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, when we will all gather around the throne of grace and worship God together for all of eternity. You know, we're looking forward to that day when we will get to gather with every saint from every generation, from every part of the earth to rejoice in what God has done. And we, th- So this is a rehearsal of that. And so if, if it's a rehearsal, then that means that we ought to be acting in the way that we're going to act in the future. So that means that we're striving for that unity of purpose so that we're making much of Christ together and loving and serving one another as Christ has called us to so that we are expressing our love for God and our love for others in obedience and in accordance with His Word, obedience to His will. So that's the first picture that we see in Scripture of what the church is. It is the house of God's family. The second is that, that we are the living church of the living God. The living church of the living God. So this second analogy comes, comes from where Paul literally says we are the church of the living God. And I want to take a couple phrases from, from this and really kind of focus in on those so we get a better picture of what Paul is saying here. And Paul says, Paul, Paul takes the phrase living God from Old Testament imagery and terminology. This was something that was common in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, where God was described as the one true and living God in contrast to the dead idols and dead gods of the false religions of the nations surrounding Israel. And I want to look at this a little bit more in depth. So turning your Bibles to Psalm 115. We're going to look at Psalm 115 for a second. We're going to look at verses 2 through 8 of Psalm 115. So here we're going to see the contrast between dead idols and the living God. Psalm 115, verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So this psalm is describing people who are relying on things that they themselves created as if they have some kind of supernatural power. Think about the the foolishness of that. at, At that time, it was that they would carve out like specific images and idols and worship those things. Well, What's the point of that? You could carve an image out of, a, out of a piece of wood, but that doesn't give it any sort of special significance. It is still trying to represent a God that does not exist and has no power. 
So what is the point of that? It is meaningless. It is fruitless. And I, I think the, the last verse in the, that I read here, verse 8, is really the most important verse in this section because it says that those who make them become like them. So the people who make dead idols become just as lifeless as the idols that they're trying to worship. Now in contrast, through the rest of the psalm, we see that the reader is called to trust in the Lord because He is the living God. He is their help, their shield. Uh, Verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Showing that He is active. He is alive. He is the only God who is able to act in this way and to do as He pleases. And if humans become like the things that they worship, then those who worship God and trust in Christ as their Savior will be given life through Him because He is the living God. That is why this point is that we are the living church of the living God. Now I want to also focus in uh, 1 Timothy 3. You can turn back there now. 1 Timothy 3.15. You know, here, here we have this, the, the, the word church. And it's important for us not just to know what the church is as a, as a concept and, a, and as like what, what we as, as the church do, but we ought to know what this word church means. So the word that is translated church in this passage is the word ekklesia. And it literally in Greek means the called out ones. So it is two words kind of combined together into this, into this word. It's a, the, the preposition ek, which means out. And it's tied into a form of the verb kaleo, which means to call. So the, the, the church, the ecclesia, are those who are called out. And, and, and in this scenario, in, in the case of the church, we are called out by God. Now this, this had a, a common use before the, the church started to adopt it and use it. it. Its original use was really for any gathering of individuals for a specific purpose. Any group of people that would gather, like separate themselves from the rest of the public for a specific purpose. Now, the church took that and, and ran with it because the, you know, each local congregation was meeting together in their city. They were, but they were called out from the city and all the things that, that the, the, the people in their city were doing so that they could serve the Lord and worship the Lord together. So there's over, it became commonly used when talking about the assembly of the saints of God, particularly local congregations, specific churches in specific towns. There are over a hundred uses in the Bible just to describe the church. They're they're just used to to say that we're talking about the church, not any sort of other gathering. We think about this in light of what Pastor Paul read in 1 Peter 2, that we are called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. So we're called out of 
the darkness of sin and called into the marvelous light of God's holiness and righteousness and His grace shown to us in His Son. So that, that is where our life comes from, that we have been called out of the world because of Christ's death that accomplished this new life, this resurrected life, that same resurrected spiritual life is given to us as we trust in Christ Jesus. John 1.4 says that in Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. So again, if, if humans become like the things that they worship, then those who trust in Christ as their living God they're given life and life eternal. We've already seen that we are part of an eternal family in God. So we, we have been given eternal life through Christ. So how are we to conduct ourselves as the living church of the living God? Well, we, we're given spiritual life through, through Christ for the purpose of living. There'd be no point in giving us life if we weren't supposed to live it, you know? You know that's, again, that's one of those things that you don't think about that just may, it seems like simple, ob- obvious. But we need to recognize the fact that God has given us spiritual life so that we will live it out. And He's got specific purposes for us and how we ought to live out this spiritual life. A couple of different passages in Ephesians that talk about this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's uh, probably a familiar phrase from, uh, familiar passage, excuse me, for most of us. Where Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has given us spiritual life in Christ and has prepared works for us to do with that life. He's empowered us with the Spirit in this new life so that we will be able to perform the works that He has called us to, each individually. Different things that, that we get to be part of God's purpose in redemptive history. He is working through us to bring the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ to the world throughout all of history. That's what we're engaged in. That's why we're given this spiritual life that we ought to live out. The other passage is Ephesians 4.24. This is part of the passage where Paul is talking about how we need to put off the old self, which is sin. And in verse 24 specifically, we are called to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this new self, this new life that we have been given is the likeness of God and His righteousness and holiness. Now, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, 
We couldn't live holy and righteously. Everything that we did was tainted by sin. But now that the Spirit is at work within us and we have been given new life in Christ, we are able to live out the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. So I don't know about you, when I read passages like this, it sounds like we have a lot of work to do. God has given us spiritual life and has given us a, a lot to do with that, that spiritual life. So we, we ought to, to get to, to that work. You know, the false gods of this world lull their worshipers into meaningless actions with no eternal significance. You know, we don't have as many folks who carve little actual, like, physical idols that they worship, but we all have different things that take precedence in our own hearts. You know, in, in Sunday school, when we were talking through a lot of this, someone brought up that just sitting in front of the television can, can warp your thinking and your understanding because you spend so much time and attention looking at that that it starts to dictate the way that you act. This person said that they became more irritable and, and lazy and tired just from sitting in front of a TV show for a couple of hours. You know, that's the sort of thing that we need to, to push hard against to not fall into those lifeless forms of worship, but to, to worship the true and living God. You know, we've been commissioned by God to reflect His righteousness and His holiness. That is a work that will continue into eternity. These other, these other lifeless acts of worship to false gods have no meaning and have no eternal significance, but we have eternal work in our grasp. So we need to get to the business of what God has, has laid out for us that we ought to do. And that leads to our last point. Really the, the, the core of what the church is and does. Because we are a representation of Christ. Which means we are a representation of the truth of His gospel. So we've seen that the church is the house of God's family. It is the tr living church of the living God. And thirdly, it is the bastion of God's truth. The bastion of God's truth. We see this when Paul refers to the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, the, the ESV's use of buttress uh, might, might be a little bit obscure. It's kind of an arch architectural phrase. A uh, better translation would, would be you know, a support of some kind of buttress as part of the support structure of, of, a, of a building or even connected to a pillar to help support the rest of the, the building. So this is all tied together as a, as a support for what, what, what Paul says, we are supporting the truth of the gospel. And you think, what is the purpose of a pillar. You know, we, there's, there's not a whole lot of architecture, especially the, this far west in America, that has a lot of pillars in it. But pillars are often used to support and to hold up the thing that it is underneath. Uh, I, I thought about this in light of the, 
the Craig's old house, which is now the Cummings house. Uh, when when uh, Andy and Priscilla moved to New York and Paul and Megan moved into, moved into their house, they started doing a lot of different renovations around the house. And one of the things that they, that they were working on was, was their kitchen area. And as part of the counter in their, their kitchen, there was this kind of spindly little pillar that when, that when they were doing all this work, they kind of knocked it and it immediately fell. Well, that, that post, as tiny and, in, and insignificant as it was it, was, it was supposed to be holding up that portion of the ceiling. So you, you can imagine the concern that happened with all of us when that thing that was supposed to be supporting a significant portion of the ceiling just easily, like, I think someone just kind of tipped it and, it and it fell over. Like, that's terrifying. There's a much larger post there to, to hold up that part of the ceiling. Now, it's a lot more secure. The, the Cummings can, can feel at ease in that part of their house. You know, usually, pillars like that, it, it, the, the way that Paul is describing it, is, is a pillar that, that's usually put in a more prominent place. It's ornate and decorative, um, but still meant to, to be a large support. And when you think about the context of this, you see that it becomes even more clear because Paul's writing to Timothy, who was a leader in the church in Ephesus. Well, Ephesus was the location of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. It was this massive structure held up by a hundred or so pillars. They were, they, were, they were all holding up this magnificent marble ceiling it was all part of this beautiful structure. This beautiful structure that really became the, the ultimate equivalent of a whitewashed tomb. You know, it looks really, really nice on the outside. Like I said, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But think about what was going on inside that temple. and Inside those pillars. Those pillars were holding up a building that was facilitating perverse pagan worship to a Greek goddess. So the members of Timothy's church would have understood the contrast here. They would have, they would have understood the analogy to a pillar and, and buttress or support, but for a much higher cause. Like it, Instead of these ornate pillars that were holding up this location of, of pagan worship, the church is called to be a collection of pillars and supports that hold up the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not doing this with any sort of external ornateness, but we're letting the beauty of the gospel itself shine forth in us. You know, we, we are proclaiming the, the glories of the gospel in the way that we live. Our lives are reflections of the faith that we hold. So we want to make sure that it is a faithful representation of what we believe. We are guardians and ambassadors of the truth of the gospel. As guardians, we're called to protect the gospel. 
You know, I use the word bastion as part of the um, as part of the outline here. The bastion is another word for a fortress. You know, this this structure that is meant to be a a, a security and safety for uh, a nation or an army or something. And really, the only the only good analogy that I could think of, because I'm a bit of a literary nerd, is in Lord of the Rings and the Battle of Helm's Deep, where the, peop- the people of Rohan come to this fortress called Helm's Deep, which has been a secure place for them in the past because they've got an army of orcs charging through trying to destroy them. Well, the people of Rohan make it to Helm's Deep, and they're able to withstand this attack because they have this, this fortress that, that holds them out for, for a certain period of time. They're able to prevail in this battle. Thank you for indulging my, my nerdiness there. But that gives you an idea of what we ought to do as the guardians of the gospel message, as a, as a protector for, of the truth. We hold on to the truth of the Scriptures tightly we defend it. We know what the Word says so well that we are able to refute false arguments against the Word of God. And not only that, that we, we also pass on that knowledge, that defense of the truth onto the coming generations. You think of an army in like a fortress or a castle or something. You don't have the same people keeping watch all the time. They're going to get tired. You have a changing of the guard. So you pass along the, the responsibility of guardianship onto the next, the next group. So not only are we to hold on to the truth of the gospel ourselves and defend against it, but we need to share that same message with, with those who come after us, the, ne- the, the next generation of believers, so that they can give that same level of defense for the gospel in the face of opposition. And we are facing a lot of opposition as the church. So as guardians, we protect the truth of the gospel. And as ambassadors, we promote the truth of the gospel. We're not not just on the defensive, defending against attacks and, and false teachings, but we are actively declaring the truth of the gospel in the things that we say and the things that we do. You know, we, we want to convey the faith that we hold so dear, and that comes out in our actions. You know, we think, think about what, what Jesus said, that, that we are the light of the world. He said, let your light shine so that people may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our lives are representations of, of the faith that we hold to. Our lives are representations of Christ. So we want to make sure that our lives are faithful representations of Christ in this world. In in John's prologue to his gospel, he talks about Christ being the light of life. And he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, nor will it ever overcome the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We have nothing to fear in declaring the truth of the gospel because it will stand firm no matter what. It's just a matter of us getting to 
to work declaring that glorious truth of the Gospel. So this is a, a, a summary of the nature of the church, what the church is. We are placed within the family of God. We are invigorated with new spiritual life in Christ. And we are commissioned to declare His truth of the Gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is, as we think about this, and we are are right at the beginning of this series on the church, this is a good time for us to, to examine our own lives and to consider the things that we're learning about the church. And how are we doing with the work that God has given us? You know, are, are we behaving properly as children of our Father, the great God Almighty? Does, does your life characterize the living worship of Christ? Or does it represent the false worship of dead idols? You know? We're all ambassadors and guardians of the Gospel. Where has God given you the chance to be an ambassador and guardian for the truth? These are things that we want you to consider. That's why, for those of you who were here for for Sunday school, that's why we took time during the Sunday school hour to talk through these things and to consider what does this look like in my life? That's why we have application questions for you to think about throughout the rest of the week and just consider how is my life reflecting these truths that I'm learning about? We want want you to to think about this and to, to consider how you may more faithfully live it out. God has chosen us as His people. He has called us to live for His glory and to declare His glorious message of the Gospel because of all that He has done for us. This is the church. This is what we ought to be. So let's get to work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, You are so faithful in providing a means by which we can live as Your people. That You have called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light, but You have not called us out to be alone. You you have given us each other. You've given us Yourself so that we may continue to grow in the grace and knowledge that You have given us. Father, we thank You for that. Thank You for the provision of Your church that we are able to work together and strive for unity in our purpose of declaring the Gospel in the things that we say and the things that we do. Father, we pray that our, our actions, our ministry as a church would reflect the realities of what You have called the church to be. Pray that we would acknowledge You as our Father. We would strive for love and unity with our brothers 
and sisters. Pray that, that, that you, you would help us to actually live out the life that you have given us, that we would be genuine ambassadors and guardians of the truth, defending against false lies and declaring the truth of the gospel so that you may be glorified above all else through what this church does and that many would come to know you and trust in Christ for salvation because of the work that you are doing within us. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.